And I remember this day, I think I was reading like a Noam Chomsky book <laughs> on an airplane and this light bulb went off because it was like all of a sudden I could kind of see the global political and economic systems and structures and how that affected our family business. Like I, all oh, of a sudden wow. I could see us in the story, like yeah. globalization and free trade policies and corporations just growing to a larger scale, you know, right. like uh, grocery stores and florists would be our biggest buyers of what we grew at the greenhouse until yeah. all of those became chains and then they yeah. no longer sourced locally. And then, you know, so we slowly lose business and then eventually roses are coming in with cocaine from Colombia for cheaper than we can grow them here in Spokane. And so that was this bingo moment for me, like, oh, I see how I've been affected by all this. Like those systems that are hard to touch, I see how they touch me. Yeah. And I want to do something about that. And just to be clear, what you're saying is that the American nanny state prevented your family from making their own cocaine. And so you could not compete on the global flower cocaine (laughs) market. Okay. All right. Just want to make sure... Do you remember a time when the American worker could start a small, you know, boutique, say cottage cocaine manufacturing syndicate and compete on the global market? Yeah. Not anymore, friends. And here to talk with us this week about the sorry state of small hold narcotics manufacturing in America is Pablo Escobar Jr., who you just heard. Just kidding. That was not Pablo Escobar Jr. That was Joel Williamson, one of the co-founders of the Grain Shed one of the best restaurants in Spokane. That, of course, is my opinion that it's one of the best restaurants in Spokane. It is also kind of like an observable fact, like go try it yourself, you sickos. Just go eat there. It's amazing. You know, I guess you could have bad taste buds. You'd be incorrect and maybe want to see a doctor. But but what is not up for debate is that the Grain Shed is also a worker and farmer-owned cooperative. So what you actually heard Joel talking about there was not a desire to go into the cocaine business. It was a desire to help his family farm compete in the globalized, I guess, flower farming market and how their essential inability to do that, to like keep a 80-year-old business alive at that point in the face of these massive global currents that were so far out of their control in little old Spokane, Washington, there was literally nothing they could do. And so that was one of the precipitating factors that led Joel down a long journey that took him to a belief, like a fundamental belief in the power of worker-owned or farmer-owned or producer-owned cooperatives as a way of capturing capital, keeping them in our communities, and also providing living wages and a degree of autonomy and literal equity ownership and also democratic governance of businesses like restaurants. Things that generally pay minimum wage to their employees and where, you know, in our traditional capitalist system, some owner somewhere or an ownership group is keeping the majority of that profit. Imagine a business where all that profit goes back to the actual employees. Does that sound too good to be true? Well, it ain't because it's happening. And you know what? We're going to talk to Joel about that coming up real soon here. But first, I want to just highlight a couple little things. I'm sure many of you are aware Coronavirus has been a kick in the nuts to the global economy, just a real good nut kicking. It's not going to surprise anybody here. And while it's been just brutal across the board, it actually helps illustrate coronavirus, helps illustrate the fundamental difference in the way an operation like a traditional, say, sole proprietorship or LLC or corporation runs, as opposed to the way a cooperative runs. So in a traditional business, you get kicked in the nuts by a global pandemic, a global downturn, some sort of supply chain shortage, any sort of catastrophe. Say you're a plane manufacturer and your planes just keep crashing. 
right? Avoidable mistakes, unavoidable mistakes. There's some sort of crisis and you need to retrench. A lot of businesses just lay off their employees. And so something like coronavirus happens, the business mind naturally starts thinking about dead wood to chop. Not everyone did, of course, but it was a big enough problem. It was a big enough concern that that was one of the things that was written into those CARES Act bills at the beginning of the pandemic. It was those 600 extra dollars from a Republican-controlled Senate for unemployment insurance for like 25 weeks or whatever it was. That's a massive gift from a party that's not used to giving money to anybody except the very, very wealthy. So it became kind of like the default cultural move to just lay your employees off for a few weeks or a month or whatever until you could get your poop in a group, get some of your clients back, whatever. I'm trying to be broad here talking across industries, but until business returned to normal, it was in the best interests of those profit-seeking companies to just lay off their workforce. There is literally almost nothing more natural than that in a capitalist framework. However, that is not how the Grain Shed thought about things. Here's Joel one more time. For us, we're governed by our members and our mission, and so we, don't, we can't choose that. So we have a bounds within which we can make decisions, and that's not an option. Wholesale is, at the end of the day, not what the business is about. Yeah. It's about serving those members and, yeah, creating livelihoods. And so, yeah, I think that is important. That's a really important distinction that we want to exist in perpetuity, not because there's some guy collecting profit in the back room, but because we have this mission that we're that we formed the corporation around, that we formed the cooperative around, and, and that's what we exist to serve. Yeah. So we need to find ways to do that. As a model, it probably doesn't get all the way to completely decoupling the profit motive from something like the desire to cook good food for people, but it gets close, right? It's it's probably the closest thing we have in the system that we have to reconnecting workers with the fruits of their labor and then actually giving them access to those fruits, the literal fruits of their labor being the money that you make. And by putting people at the center, it does some really interesting things, which we'll talk about in depth, but I just want to sort of underscore here. You're not going to see a business like this pivoting in search of profit. You'll see it maybe pivoting as they did during COVID, pivoting in search of finding stability for their teammates and being able to continue employing the people that are the worker owners in the cooperative. And that might seem like a subtle distinction, but it feels important to me. It is not in any way an exaggeration to say that the easiest way to balance a business's books is to lay off your employees, right? That doesn't mean that you can continue doing business, right? You might not be able to, but in, in a crisis when everything shuts down, the easiest way to trim your expenses is to get rid of your employees because, you know, with very few exceptions, your employees are the most expensive part of a business. And so when you're a traditional business and you're thinking at the abstract level of the balance sheet or the profit and loss statement, as we've talked about a number of times on this podcast, you, when you abstract it away from the lives of the people that you're employing, it gets a little bit easier to have that moral drift, to be like, you know what? Yeah, okay. We're just going to let the workforce go, shutter, hunker down, wait for brighter days. With a business like the Grain Shed, though, the workers are the whole point. A livelihood for people in our community is the whole point. And therefore, those people are no longer abstracted line items on a profit and loss statement. They are the whole reason for being in business. 
And so while maybe at the outset this seems like an academic distinction, it could not be further from that. It is a fundamental shift in the focus of an organization away from pure profit for profit's sake toward building community, building livelihoods, and building resiliency across an entire area, region, neighborhood, city, state. Speaking of the profit motive, if you like range, you can help us make this a sustainable enterprise by becoming a member, $10 a month, $100 a year at rangemedia.co. All this content is always free. It's going to be free in perpetuity for people who cannot afford it. But if you can, and if you have the means, please support us so that we can keep that mission going. Lastly, happy belated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. There's an essay, a short essay that I wrote up on the newsletter. If you subscribe to that, you already got it. Otherwise, you can go to rangemedia.co and check it out. Just a short essay about the sort of underreported militancy of our man, Martin Luther King Jr., who I think, not 100% sure, but like 99% sure, would have loved a co-op. Martin Luther King Jr. would have loved a co-op. This is also going to be hitting inboxes on Inauguration Day, so... The only thing I'll say about that that hasn't already been said a million times is I just hope for a peaceful transition so that we can get back to hating the feckless assholes in Washington, D.C. for all the normal reasons and not for all of the Trumpian reasons. Won't that be just refreshing? All right, y'all. Joel Williamson of The Grain Shed and Link Foods coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 24, Co-Ops, get your co-ops here! Joel Williamson, thanks for coming on Range, man. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So Joel, you are, I'll, I'll let you roll with your bio maybe. It's a little too early in the morning. We're doing this, this un, uncharacteristically, rather than recording this at the end of the day, we're recording it before the beginning of the day. Uh, this is December 22nd. It'll probably come out a couple weeks after uh, the new year. Uh, I'm still shaking the cobwebs off. Um, you've been involved in the, uh, in the cooperative sort of movement in Spokane and really kind of spearheading it because there wasn't much of a cooperative movement before you got here, outside of REI maybe. <laughs> Maybe we just talk, first of all, like at, at like a definitional level, what's a cooperative and what makes it different than like a traditional business? Totally. Um, so at the base level, you know, there's not a huge difference. Like a traditional business, you think of there's a certain number of owners and they have a certain number of power. Maybe they have stock. So yeah. like a traditional corporation, right? There's like stockholders and they kind of vote and control the company. And those right. the stock is based on how much money you have invested in the business. So with a cooperative, um, there are members instead. So those could be the workers, the employees. They could be people that supply the co-op, like farmers, um, or they could be customers, like REI, or like a grocery store. And so then those members each have one equal share in the business, and they're actually the ones that, at the end of the day, that would profit from it and that also govern it. So rather than in the in the case of like a sole proprietorship that maybe has five employees where all the profits go back to the owner, or in in the case of like an LLC or a corporation where they the profits would all go back to whoever owns shares in the company or owns a percentage of the LLC. 
all the profits, if there are any at the end of the year, sort of go back to the worker. The workers are basically the owners. I mean, exactly. that's the simplest way to put it. Exactly. Uh, and then on the consumer side, un- unless there's like some marketing around it or whatever, you're not going to notice a massive difference. Like right. you don't have to walk into the grain shed, which is one of the, the uh, cooperatives you helped start down in South Perry and like um, salute a bust of Stalin or anything like that. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So there's no, there's no, there's no secret handshake. You don't have to right. <laughs> recite the communist manifesto. Yep. Okay. You just go in and you get amazing bread and you know that since the workers own the company, the workers are paid better. They have more of a democratic control over the exactly. company itself. Exactly. So maybe talk a little bit about that. So if you've got a company that's got like 10 people, does, is everybody involved in every decision or how does that right. sort of structurally work? That's a great question. And that often gets brought up early when you're talking about co-ops and they say, how do you get anything done? You know, how do you make any decisions? You know, <laughs> you need a, you need a, a hierarchy. And so the great thing about the cooperative structure is that that's your ownership structure. So think of it as like the shell of the building, you know, the foundation and the roof and the walls, whatever you do inside of that is still up to you. And so there are co-ops that still have a traditional management hierarchy inside with maybe a general manager or a CEO type. And then they have other, you know, uh, managers in charge of other things all the way to a co-op that's more of a collective where everyone does have to make all of the decisions together. So it's totally up to how you want to do it. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, there is a board, though, um, that's elected by the members each year. And that board generally makes kind of the really big decisions. Are we yeah. going to close? Are we going to take on a loan? Are we going to open a new location? Right. And so at that level, there is some fundamental democracy. It's, it's basically kind of like a representative democracy, yeah. not unlike state exactly. legislatures and stuff like that. Yes. Um, I want to talk kind of about the history of cooperatives in a moment, but like what drew you to this work? Like what, when you were sort of figuring out what you wanted to do uh, as a, uh, as a young professional, what, what drew you to cooperatives as like a thing that you were going to, I mean, is it fair to say you're going to dedicate your life to it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while to get here. So (laughs) do we do the story by way of my bio? Cause that's really, yeah, we really can, how it comes yeah, sure, about. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. And, and you reminded me of the episode where you talked about, uh, your dad and, and his business. So Absolutely. very yep. similar to me. It's a big driver for, um, for why I do what I do. So go off King. <laughs> so, uh, in 1917, my great grandpa started, um, this flower growing and food growing at the time greenhouse up on the South Hill on Moran Prairie. So Palouse highway 57th, um, Jacobson's greenhouses. Uh, my grandpa took that over in the 50s or so, 60s. And and then uh, my parents, um, it's my mom's side of the family, my dad married in and then they co-ran the greenhouse together starting like right before I was born, late okay. 70s. All right. So I grew up on this family farm, essentially. It was my, my great-grandparents' house was on the property, our house is on the property, my grandparents' house is on the property. Both sides of the family, dads and moms, uh, were there every day operating this greenhouse. And if you guys um, want to get a sense of this, you it's like the, you know, aisle 15 or 16 of the target that's up there now yeah. roughly is like where this farm was <laughs> exactly so exactly. yeah if you're trying to picture this just, it is no just go to target <laughs> yeah. yep that was my stomping grounds back there um so grew up there and it was such a unique experience and uh by the by 1998 when i was 16 uh we had gotten to the point where uh we could barely keep it going and and they actually decided to shut down before we went bankrupt and oh, wow. and my parents got divorced it was like this huge kind of slow motion um crash of the entire oh, yeah. thing that our whole family had built right and it was yeah. super painful and destructive and I, I had no idea what was going on because they didn't talk to me about it and i was 16 yeah. had my own problems and uh it had this lasting impact on me but i never understood what had happened or why yeah and so went to college, uh, was really into theater and art, actually. And it was mm. just, I think, the only place I could fit in at Ferris because <laughs> I was the nerdy <laughs> farm kid. And it just, you know, 
those people accepted me. So I got really into that. I always thought I was going to be uh, an electrician or a mechanic or something. So it made sense. I did lighting design and all of that. So yeah. I kind of combined the electrical piece of my brain with the artistic piece and oh, that's cool. gotten into doing that. Um, knew I wanted to do that from day one. So that's what I focused on. But then, uh, got all of that done so fast that in my senior year, I was like, oh, I, have to, I have all these electives I have to fill. So I just started taking all these art history classes and art, as you know, same as theater. It's very political. You know, they're always yeah. telling a good story about something about the world and trying to help you understand it or trying to work through it uh, and make a point. And all of that started to have a really big effect on me. And then moved to LA um, to do theater, um, got on a, a touring show as the lighting director, it was actually about racism in America. It was oh, three wow. guys at UCLA that um, graduated together, wrote their own show about their own stories about encountering oh, wow. racism in America. Wow. One's Filipino, uh, one is African American, grew up in Compton, and one um, is actually an illegal immigrant from Ecuador wow. and grew up with trying to deal with all that and figure out what it means. Yeah. Um, so we were touring around, and uh, the show was very political. We always had great discussions in between shows, but I had a ton of time to read. And so it was actually post my formal education that I started oh, going, wow. I want to understand politics and economics. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, what are these things we keep talking about? And why do they rule all of these stories that we tell through theater, right? Yeah. Didn't know anything about it. Wanted to understand how the, how the world works, basically. And I remember this day, I think I was reading like a Noam Chomsky book <laughs> on an airplane and this light bulb went off because it was like all of a sudden I could kind of see the global political and economic systems and structures and how they had changed and how that affected our family business. Like I, all oh, of a sudden I could wow. see us in the story, like yeah. globalization and free trade policies and corporations just growing to a larger scale, you know, right. like uh, grocery stores and florists would be our biggest buyers of what we grew at the greenhouse until yeah. all of those became chains and then they yeah. no longer sourced locally. Yeah, right. And then, you know, so we slowly lose business and then eventually Roses are coming in with cocaine from Colombia for right. cheaper and, than we yeah, can grow them here in Spokane. Yeah, right. And, and that, you know, involves like corporate consolidation of uh, farming practices and stuff yeah. like that as well, right? Exactly. And yeah. so that was this bingo moment for me, like, oh, I see how I've been affected by all this. Like those yeah. systems that are hard to touch, I see how they touch me. Yeah. And I want to do something about that. And just to be clear, what you're saying is that the American nanny state prevented your family from <laughs> making their own cocaine. And so you right. could not compete on the global flower cocaine That's market. Right. Okay. All right. That's just right. want to make sure where we're at in terms of your political advantage. growth here. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Go ahead. So yeah, I kind of recognized all that and thought, okay, uh, when this tour is over, I want to move back home and I want to do something. Yeah. I want to, yeah. I want to do something um, in this community and, um, try to create something for families uh, so they could have a different experience than I had here. Right. They could have some kind of control over what's going on. And I didn't have the answer for how to do that. I just knew yeah. I wanted to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So got back, um, did AmeriCorps Vista, um, ended up working at Odyssey Youth Center. Okay. Uh, gosh, worked, I was the first executive director at Project Hope in West Central, working with kids. Oh, like, I don't think I knew that. Doing urban farming Dude, and all kinds Joel, of really cool this stuff. This probably yeah. doesn't sound like this because of all the surprise that I'm expressing like, right what? now. But Joel and I are actually pretty good friends, and I don't think I do any of this stuff. <laughs> I did a lot of stuff. It was like every two years I did something else. Yeah. Um, worked for John Snyder on the city council. This oh, is yeah, I, did, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so I just kind of was going through all these different um, nonprofit. Oh, uh, Spokane Alliance doing community organizing with unions and churches. So kind of kept trying out these different things. And in each one, I think I was trying to figure out where can I make an impact yeah. um, that seemed meaningful towards these goals? And then how can I do that in a way that is my vocation and my job, right? That's actually sustaining, not yeah, just the yeah. extra thing that I do right. uh, with extra time. And in all of those cases, I saw a different piece of the big puzzle and that was great and it was all really, really good, important work. 
It also was really hard to earn a living. It was hard for the organizations in some cases to continue to exist, right? Yeah, to earn right. all the funding they need to just do what they do in the world. And it's just this constant struggle. And I, I kept thinking, gosh, there's gotta be some <laughs> other way to do this. And I always thought, you know, business was the problem. Like that was not what I wanted to do. Politics wasn't really what I wanted to do at the end of the day. It was, yeah. it was part of it. Uh, it was exciting and learned a lot, but still seemed like, I don't know, it wasn't close enough to the ground for me. It just, yeah, yeah it didn't satisfy that part. And so actually through community organizing, I met this guy who lives in Spokane today now, and he slipped me this like pamphlet <laughs> about Mondragon. And I was like, what the hell is this Mondragon thing? I remember I like, it's like, thank you. And I kind of put it away in a folder somewhere. And I remember pulling it out months later, maybe even a year later and going, oh yeah, what was this thing? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a fairy tale. <laughs> um, and Mondragon is a, a, a part of the Basque region of Spain. It's yeah. also the name of this giant um, cooperative of cooperatives, of worker cooperatives in mm. Spain. It's like the biggest uh, intentional collection of worker cooperatives in the entire world. And went, whoa, what is this? And just started learning more. And so that's when I learned about the cooperative model. And again, because I'd never thought about business as a pathway to achieve my goals. I just yeah. thought, nope, not interesting. Right. It was the cooperative lens that started to make me think, wait a minute, this could do it. Like you could create a business that's organized in this way, that's doing good for everyone involved in it as, as well as the community and it's self-sustaining, right? Yeah. In theory, like if it's successful, it's earning enough money through its own activities to do good in the world. You're not out begging for the money you need to do Yeah, you're not relying on yeah. grants, you're not relying on donors, you're doing business and that is supporting some number of families, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, it's self-sustaining. Yeah. Exactly. And so that would just, it just seemed like, wow, this is really interesting. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but it was really interesting. And I think I had just categorized it as interesting, but didn't know what to do. And then I met my now good friend and co-founder of Link Foods, Beth Robinette, who owns the Lazy R Ranch um, outside of town. Another family farm, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and almost the same uh, story as our family, except they, they really did make some changes at the right times to continue to survive into yeah. today. And so they're doing really cool stuff. Um, met her and she was just halfway through her program at uh, Bainbridge Graduate Institute at the time, um, getting her MBA. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want an MBA. And she's like, no, you really got to check this program out. It's about like using business as a force for good and like yeah. using sustainability as the underlying mechanism of that. And I thought, oh, maybe that is what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. The more I looked into it, kind of the message called out and then I uh, ended up joining the program the next year. And uh, so kind of learning the tools of how to do business, but the whole time for me through the cooperative lens, which actually wasn't a big focus of the program. They were, yeah. they were good at other sustainability type things, but um, yeah. I just rooted all of that in cooperatives and thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. Create cooperatives. <laughs> so maybe we could, we could downshift into that history of Mondragon. So like what, yeah. let's talk about, cause that, that's kind of like the, the, biggest and best example of how a, uh, a cooperative can change an entire region. Exactly. It's also got about what, 70 years of history behind it. So you can oh, sort yeah. of see like the path that it takes. So maybe you could just sort of talk about what's the history of, so Mondragon, Spain, it's in the Basque region, like you said, which is a historically kind of an autonomous zone. It's historically also kind of a neglected area yeah. of the country. So, yeah. so just, yeah, let's start there. Yeah. So it's a, it's a unique part of Spain, uh, unique culture, and they certainly were uh, <laughs> kind of like shat upon by Franco and that entire yeah, regime right. and coming out of World War II. I mean, actually, so the painting Guernica is about the Basque region of Spain right, like right. being bombed to nothing, you know. Yeah. 
And so these people were coming out of that time thinking, God, what do we do? You know, no one cares about us. We're like a subsection of, of one country and we just, you know, we have nothing right now. Yeah. And this Jesuit priest was sent there to be like, oh, here, go do your thing. Yeah. And he was just a real practical dude. And he looked around and thought, okay, well, building a church is not going to help anyone uh, <laughs> right yeah. now. You know, these people have nothing and they're not going to get help from anyone else. So we have whatever we do here, we need to do it for ourselves. And so what, what would that be? And he at the time was struggling with how you create a better everyday world too. You know, yeah. not like how do you make the everyday pieces of life, um, production and consumption and all of that good. Yeah. And looking at kind of the big forces of capitalism at the time and the yeah. big forces of what was, uh, you know, communism or state controlled socialism and, and yeah. saying, wow, all these systems have all these failings, you know, yeah. like they're, they're not really helping ordinary people in either case. And he had learned about cooperatives too. And for him, it was, it was just as simple as the in-between of those two systems. Yeah, it was right. still free market, but it was democratic community ownership. And he felt like, wow, there's something here. Yeah. And so the first thing they did was actually start a cooperative school, uh, like a polytechnic school, it's what they called oh, it. Wow. And to train people on kind of basic engineering skills and manufacturing skills. Yeah. And they thought, okay, well, let's just start making our own things. And just to be a little bit clear about the, the socio-political situation, like Franco was a fascist. Oh, yeah. He was not like as genocidal as Hitler. Yeah, but it's not good. If, if you're, you know, one of the one of the core constituents of, of fascism is that you're it's like you it really tends to develop within like culturally homogenous groups. So the Basque isn't just a, that's not just like a region of Spain. It's like a culturally a people. Yeah, the language it's actually a language isolate. It's not a romance language the way that Spanish and French is. It's like purely a culture unto itself. So it's not just a matter of like this being kind of a backwater region. It was like an un-Spanish part yeah. of Spain. And cooperatives are a form of socialism. So the fact that it was able to stay alive during the most persistent fascist regime yeah. in world history, because <laughs> uh, Franco was around until the 70s. I'll have to check that. But yeah, I can't remember either. He was in power for a really long time. Just fact-checking myself here really quick. So Franco was a general during the Spanish Civil War, which ran from 1936 to 1939. He quickly became like one of the most prominent generals in that war. And then he ruled from 1939 to 1975 as a dictator, assuming the title of Cadillo, which means, I think, a personalist leader wielding military and political power. So like a strongman, a warlord, like a guy who's very much, this is my country and I have made it in my own image. There is, however, scholarly dispute over whether or not Franco was a fascist. So let me just read from, let's just do Wikipedia here. The Oxford Living Dictionary uses Franco's regime as an example of fascism. However, most historians agree that although Franco and Spain under his rule adopted some trappings of fascism, they are generally not considered to be fascist, at most describing the early totalitarian phase of his rule as a fascisticized dictatorship or a semi-fascist regime. Either way, though, he was very, very anti-communist uh, and very anti-anarchist. So the factions that were arrayed during the Civil War were like the nationalists and the Catholics and the traditionalists versus basically everybody from the left-leaning government that Franco and his people ended up overthrowing to like the communists who lived in Spain all fought against Franco. So this guy was like very against the sort of stuff that might have been going on at Mondragon, but maybe the fact that he was a priest in a Catholic church that gave uh, the priest who founded Mondragon, uh, Jose Maria Arismendiareta. Arismendiareta. There's probably a R in there. Arismendiareta cover to like keep this going under Franco. And actually, now that I remember it, he's such a beloved figure that his last name is often shortened to Arismendi. So I could have just. <laughs> 
I could have saved myself that torture. Could have also saved you that torture of listening to me try to pronounce that. But you know what I want to do right by the people of Spain, the Spanish language, this beautiful, beautiful language that I just butchered. So please, for the love of God, do not jump in my mentions from my high school Spanish. I am doing my best. I know that was part of it, where, and that was part of their their solution. Like, well, whatever we do, we kind of got to fly under the radar yeah. and just rebuild our community ourselves. Don't draw attention. <laughs> totally. And it's fascinating to me that they started a, a, a school, yeah. right? Because like what you're probably thinking, and I, I know for a fact, this is what happened with you guys in Link Foods, which was the first co-op you guys started before the Grain Shed, was like basically doing a needs assessment of the community yeah. and being like, what's what's missing and where do we even yeah. start, right? Exactly. exactly. That's, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And they just built a couple of manufacturing co-ops after that and started to kind of knit together this um, community of co-ops. And one of the things they did fairly early on, and I, I don't remember the timeline for this either, is they had the school, they had some of these manufacturing co-ops, uh, maybe they even had like a grocery store co-op, and then they started their own bank, <laughs> ah. <laughs> which is absolutely Amazing. And I saw a video of some of the old time Mondragon people talking about that. And they're like, we had no idea what we were doing. We just knew we had to do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, because you have to because businesses need access to yeah. capital. Right. And again, they wanted to control that. Yeah, uh, right. uh, Mendy, the, the priest at the time, said if they're going to succeed. A fundamental um, concept or a thing they had to put into place was entrapment of capital. Yeah. And he meant like whatever we generate here, we need to keep here for our uses, for right. our purpose. And I think about that, too. It's like. We can do these local, and this is where our system is still lacking. We can do these local cooperative initiatives, but what if someone wants a retirement account? Yeah. Where's that money going to go? Well, it's right. not going to be local. It's going to be in Wall Street, right? Yeah, so you're right. not entrapping your own capital that you're generating here for purposes here. It goes off somewhere else. It serves someone else's purpose. It leaves the community. And that's what he was trying to prevent. He's like, we need this right. to start and more businesses. <laughs> absolutely. And so one thing that I think listeners will be very familiar with is the buy local movement, which yeah. is a for, is a way of trapping capital, absolutely. right? So especially this time of year, especially this time of year. Right. And it's and during COVID, actually, my wife and I were just talking about how powerful the live local message has become in COVID, right? Yeah. Because people are starting to just look around and be like, think restaurants are closing left and right. We need capital entrapment. We need yep. to keep the money that we earn yep. in the community that we earn it in. Definitely. You know? So if you think of like traditional multinational or just like large chain business, it's like you buy something from Target, it goes to Minneapolis because that's where the corporate headquarters is. And it eventually gets distributed to their shareholders, which are all over the world. Yeah. The reason to buy local is so that like as much money as you earn sort of stays in Spokane. And then that gets, you know, and when it's a mom and pop shop, uh, it gets here. recirculated yeah. to their employees and whatnot. But then, like you were just saying, it's like, where do they bank? Do they bank with Chase? Do right. they bank with Bank of America? You yep. know, where does all that stored capital, like the stored wealth, and we don't always think about it that way. It doesn't mean that you're rich, but like everyone has a bank account with something in it. Yeah. That's stored capital. That's like, it's like potential energy. Right. And if it's stored somewhere where someone else gets to use it for their own purposes, which is what that banks do. They do literally, overnight the, literally the purpose gambling. of banks, the whole <laughs> purpose of banks. Yeah. yeah. And they make money off your money like every single night somewhere else. And now all that money goes somewhere else. And so is that going into some weird investment in Malaysia or is it back a business loan or a, like a construction loan for a housing right. project in Spokane? or a new business yep. in Spokane, right? Yep. Yeah. Meanwhile, you try to start a small business and uh, you can't get access to capital. So yeah, I mean, they were brilliant in thinking early on, we need a bank. Um, and the bank was cool because to, to ensure that it serves the purposes of, of their project, it was not only owned by the workers that worked at the bank, it's also owned by the businesses of the community. So they have their accounts there. So that's one, one form. They also get their loan 
from the bank, but they also own the bank. Right. So they ensure that all that capital is going to continue to grow and then be recirculated in the community, only used for starting the next co-op and the next one and the next one. <sighs> kind of like a credit union model, yeah, except worker absolutely. owned. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, very similar. That's fascinating. So you're reading about Mondragon and you're like, oh my God, this might this be amazing. the solution that, or, it, you know, who knows, but this would have maybe made my family's business a little bit more sustainable or exactly. the next, you know, so exactly. talk about that. Yeah, it was definitely that thought. It felt like everything that we went through uh, with our family in our greenhouse, it was out of our control. It was happening to us. It was happening yeah. at some level so far away that we we had no way to, to touch it or interact with it or have a say in it. Yeah. And so I felt like, how do we create it? I didn't know the answer again, but how do we create a community where uh, each of our livelihoods that's so important to each of us and our families, how, how do we have control over that? At least yeah. some form. <laughs> right. How do we have some say over that? How do we really get to, to interact with that ourselves? And Mondragon just made sense to me. That's exactly what they did. They said, yeah. let's create our own thing. Um, and they, they're really still very popular. They, they actually export a whole bunch of really good appliances that they make at their, oh, wow. their factories. And but they do it for their own purposes. And like 70 years later, roughly, yeah. they now employ like oh, I can't remember. 10, 50,000 people yeah. or something like that. Another quick little fact check. As of 2019, the Mondragon cooperatives employed 81,507 people. That is incredible. In this region, right? Yeah. So they're probably the largest employer in the Basque region of Spain. When they have all these second level co-ops, as they call them, which are kind of like the bank. So they, they serve all of the other co-ops. And oh. so like they have their own uh, basically health insurance co-op, their yeah. own social security co-op. Like they have all of their social benefits um, taking care of themselves too. So it's kind of like they don't even care what the state does anymore in those regards because they have all of those systems right. themselves. <laughs> they fund them all themselves. So again, they're not dependent on outside forces that, that are beyond their control. And I would imagine that, that, you know, nobody's immune to the forces of globalization, but when you have 50,000 yeah. people, again, 2019 numbers, 81,507 people who have bought into some level of what you're working on, those people form a customer base as Definitely. well for you to be like, oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to buy the co-op's appliances because they're good, but also because I know, I know where that the money goes. I know where the money goes. Yeah. The money actually goes to me in a roundabout way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were um, uh, Father Joel, so like like uh, like Arismendi, the Jesuit who started Mondragon, you were looking around Spokane with Beth, your partner in yeah. Link Foods, and you identified a need the way that he did. And so, what Definitely. was the need you guys identified? Uh, it's in it's in ag it's in the ag exactly. space. Exactly. Yeah. So what that's, is it? That's what Beth and I really had in common. Um, her with her family um, cattle ranch, and then um, us kind of uh, by way of the greenhouse. But I was always involved in agriculture, and, and my dad was really deeply involved, and and my grandpa. Um, I think he did a lot with the Farm Bureau. And we grew up across the street from a grange, you know, a whole oh, yeah. system of agricultural, like yeah. organizing and community centers that have died. So that was kind of imprinted on me too. But but yeah, so both of us were involved with that. Um, we were doing this whole business school thing that I thought I would never do. And we thought, okay, how can we help agriculture? How could we help um, farms just like Beth's? And she's like, well, you know, a lot of us do what we do, but we don't really how to make a business plan. We don't really know how to figure out our costs, um, that kind of stuff. So we started working with um, WSU Extension um, and the Conservation District and figuring out how we could help small farms. So actually we ended up teaching a couple of classes and getting okay. kind of plugged into that network. But yeah. by way of doing that, we kept hearing the same thing from all the small farms, like be it produce or beef or whatever they were doing. They all grew a certain amount, but they could grow a lot more uh, of their actual products, whatever it is, vegetables, let's say, 
And they only knew how to sell those either at a farm stand on their farm or at a farmer's market, um, which ends up being quite labor intensive, actually, to sell your produce at farmer's markets. You have to do maybe three or four of them a week. So that's all time away from the farm. Yeah. Um, If you don't sell what you bring there, it's sitting out in the sun all day. And then what do you do with it after that? So they all had this kind of similar story where they could grow and they all had outside jobs. So it was like the farm was what they wanted to do, but they all still had to have another job to earn enough income to actually support their family. And Hashtag rise and grind. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't know how to do that. They're like, well, we could grow more, but I don't know where I would sell it. Yeah. Um, we need to get to that next level. And so at the same time, we got a contract, I think through Empire Health Foundation, they were looking at public schools and the public school system, doing a lot with uh, improving nutrition there. But they also were like, oh, well, we kind of want to know what they do about local sourcing. So we got that contract, worked with seven school districts in the area to figure out um, how does their system work? Do they buy local? Can they? Do they want to? If they want to, which it turned out they did, why can't they? And that was just a, a matter of distribution. You know, they, they have like a couple big distributors they work with and they don't have local food. <laughs> it's an economies of scale thing, you know, like Cisco, the biggest food distributor in the world, probably, at least in the U.S., won't source from a small farm. They're only going to source from a farm that has, you know, thousands of acres, not because it doesn't five acres. It, that that model <laughs> yeah. is not going to be profitable for Cisco. Exactly. And at the end of the day, that's exactly. all Cisco cares about is. Yeah. You know, there might be some sort of far off vision, mission values for like providing good produce to people or whatever. But ultimately, they're not going to go out of their way for something that's not going to make them a marginal, a a return on investment that is within an acceptable profit margin. Yeah, exactly. So it seemed like what we were hearing from both sides, these big institutions in the community, um, like school districts. And then we started talking to um, colleges and universities like Gonzaga was one of our early um, conversations around this. And same kind of things. They wanted to buy local, had no opportunity to do so. Farmers want to sell more food, have no channel to do that. So we thought, well, this seems like an important leverage point here. Like there's something missing. The other thing you've told me about the farmer side of things was that they they have to sell their goods on a commodity market, right? So the way that this stuff works is when people talk about pork bellies and pork futures and, and whatever and grain futures and stuff, you're, you're basically, whatever grain you make, regardless of what your business practices are, what regardless of what co- sort of regenerative farming practices yeah. you have traditionally, and whether or not you're organic certified or not, or if you just, you know, even, you know, more than organic practices, in some cases, re- like regenerative agriculture practices, which are more expensive, you still have to sell your grain or whatever on a commodities market where the price mm-hmm. is set by this global market we've been talking about. Exactly. So one of the things you guys were thinking about that I thought was so brilliant is you weren't just trying to be a competitor for Cisco as a distribution network. What you were trying to do was be a distribution network that sort of added value or at least communicated to the end that to whoever you were selling it to that like this, this produce is actually special. It's grown in a special way. You need to spend more money on it to support these farmers. Like the most janky equivalent would be like Angus beef or something. Right. So it was like, there was a, you know, a marketing push around a specific kind of beef that people would be like, Oh, that's amazing beef. That's the best (laughs) kind of beef in the world. I I don't want to just pay like ground chuck prices for this beef. it's, It's in some way exceptional. And so what you guys were thinking about with this distribution thing is like, we're going to do a values-based food distributor and yeah. then we're going to spend a, a shitload of time talking, sorry, mom, talking with all of these end users, including big, huge institutional end users like Gonzaga and hospitals yeah. and school districts to say, hey, this this is a local product you need to be spending. You know, you should spend a little bit more money on it because it's better. 
Yeah. And, and there's a marketing value there too for you. You know, I mean, that's uh, the struggle is that they're used to a carrot being a carrot and we had to help show them that, well, <laughs> you could buy this carrot grown this way from this farm or this carrot. And then, you know, and they have different, uh, different stories uh, attached to them, but they also have different values in terms of their flavor. Yeah. In they terms taste of better. how they look. Yeah. In terms of how long they'll last in the cooler, you know, cause like they picked it yesterday versus the, the carrot you got from Cisco that was picked like three weeks ago and sat in some warehouses and traveled across the country. So yeah, that's, it's a struggle, but it's, and then that allows you to sort of pass that extra value to the farmer to exactly. hopefully help exactly. them make it a little bit easier for them to actually, you know, yeah. turn, turn their side hustle into their main hustle to, co- you know, to use a phrase. And that's where the cooperative model was important to us too. We actually did a hype kind of what's called a hybrid co-op where there was two ownership classes. So the, the growers, the farmers um, that supply the co-op whose products we market to these institutions own the business. And then so do the workers that work there every day. Oh, that's awesome. So both of us uh, make up the board and make all the decisions. And uh, at the end of the day, um, everything we do is kind of filtered through that lens. You know, like, are we serving our mission and are we serving our members? Um, and that's very different for the food system, right? Because yeah. uh, there's a lot of opacity there. And that's how farmers get taken advantage of because distributors basically play the game of buy low, sell high right. within the range that they can for yeah. any product right. on any day. And we we knew that was a problem and we knew farmers were pissed about it. And so we we wanted to change that and say like, it's so transparent that you also own it. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You can vote on it. I literally just heard something about how the McRib is back for the first time in a decade. And it's like, I've always, you know, because everybody loves the McRib. It's almost like a cultural touchdown where it's like, Oh, the McRib is back. And everybody, the reason the McRib only comes around once every decade is because once every decade, pork prices get low enough that McDonald's will buy up all the excess pork belly, literally pork belly, I think, in America. <laughs> then it's all of a sudden it's McRib time again. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a business decision they've made based on the profitability of pork that then they like shave into a million pieces and reconstitute into a fake looking uh, rib <laughs> product. So that's like that's what um, is happening every single day in yeah. the traditional agriculture market. You're Definitely. Saying. Yeah. Yeah. And farmers just don't have power in that system, you know. They kind of take the price that they can get, yeah. and that's about it. Whereas everyone else in the in the marketplace gets to play around with that and say like, "Oh yeah, there's a there's yeah. a glut of pork. Let's yeah. you know, it's cheap. Let's make money on it." Yeah, and so like what you did with Link Foods was you not only sort of gave farmers and then workers ownership in the company that was was helping yeah. serve this end user, being like an institution like Gonzaga or a, a grocery store. Uh, but you were also adding a little bit of transparency, daylight to yeah. like, your, okay, cool. We actually sold your soybeans or whatever, your your lettuce for X amount of money, right? Exactly. Um, and then that, will, that won't necessarily enter into the day-to-day transactions of the farmer, right? You still might be buying the lettuce for a buck and sell, and, but if lettuce prices suddenly go up and you sell it for three bucks, that would eventually return to the farmer in the form of the profits of the distribution company. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how's that going? How's it changed? Oh man, it's been a year. <laughs> um, in March, when everything shut down, uh, I mean, basically our entire wholesale food business disappeared overnight. Yeah. You know, all of all of our biggest buyers, but even the smallest ones, disappeared. So wow. we always um, had had a small direct to consumer part of the food business where we did um, what we call Linkbox. It's like a multi-farm CSA. So yeah. people subscribe um, for either the summer or the fall or the winter or all of it. And they get uh, a box of whatever our growers have, um, a good mix of stuff from the region uh, each week. And so in that moment, we thought, 
well, that's all we've got. So let's go all in on that. Wow. And uh, approaching the end of the year here, we've actually kind of looked at how the year's gone and and what we've learned from that. And we've decided that as depressing as it may be for the conversation we just had, we've actually decided um, that we're going to go all direct to consumer cool. from here on out for a while, um, yeah. for at least the foreseeable future, um, not just because of COVID, but because it actually gets a better value to our growers yeah. and we don't have to play that game because unfortunately we still have to play all these food industry games and we were just a smaller player in yeah, all of that. And right. so we had more or less success with that depending on the thing, but we never really got to the scale of doing that, that, yeah. that we would need to, to really make the business work. But you also know part. how to do it. So if you return we to do. it at some point, you can do it. And I think when we return to it, yeah, we'll do it differently and we'll do it from a place of um, a better base of, you yeah. know, of support where we have this big direct to consumer business because ultimately the 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 closer you can get to a, what what business dudes would call a, a vertically integrated model where you're yeah. you know starting at the very base fundamental part of any sort of value chain process any sort of product creation in in this case like the growing of the corn or whatever the lettuce the produce or the, the animals, and then seeing that all the way through within the company to an end user of some sort. So, yeah. you know, to start out with, it was big institutions, but then they were still going to, they were still buying that at a wholesale price, even if it was an inflated wholesale price, Exactly. to then turn into something that they were going to sell to, you know, the people that eat at the cafeteria at Sacred Heart or at the yeah. cafeteria at Gonzaga, or, you know, if it's like you're just selling a head of lettuce at the main market co-op, that's, they're still going to mark that up a little bit. Yeah. What, what, going all the way to the consumer with the CSA allows you to do is capture that final sort of leg of the value chain. Yeah. And tell the story directly, and tell to, the story the directly to the consumer. Get the product. I think uh, uh, some, sometimes those institutions like uh, universities really shot themselves in the foot because they liked what we were doing and they knew that it was worth more. But if they didn't tell that story all the way through to their customer, the students eating in the cafeteria, they felt like they couldn't charge more on their end. And so uh -huh. then we're just inflating their cost of goods. And it's like, we gave them the story, but they weren't carrying it yeah, through in a yeah, way yeah. where the students would go, oh, this is really cool. Like yeah. this was actually, this beef was grown like 20 miles from here. That's really yeah. awesome. It was higher quality. And so that also was a struggle constantly. And in this model where we go directly to the consumer, we just add value to the growers by still doing that work for them. Like we aggregate and package and market their product for them, but their story goes straight through the co-op to the the people that actually use the food. Right. And I think that's, that's better. And hopefully, you know, and that's, if you're educating that end consumer, yeah. they might actually start asking for it at exactly. the grocery store eventually. Right? Exactly. We're hoping that we can make change in that way for a while and, and just build more stability for us and then go back into wholesale in a different way. And here's the other thing that I just want to like underscore here, because what you guys are interested in doing is like helping families have sustainable lives, right? as opposed to just purely making profit for a company, you did something that Cisco would have never done, which right. was actually pivot your business model to be like, oh no, no, what, actually what's the best way we can serve farmers? What's the best way we can continue to employ our workers? Yeah. Oh, we're gonna completely change our business model. Cisco would never do that. They would just lay everybody off. If what, what happened to you guys at the beginning of COVID happened to a company like Cisco, they would mothball everything. They would lay everybody off. They would just preserve, they would basically just go into hibernation. Yeah. Right? A lot of distributors that are big now started similar to us, and they like wow. to tout that story like, oh, we're about the family farm. But when they got to the point where we did, where maybe it was it was tough, they went in search of the cheaper product. Uh. For us, we're governed by our members and our mission, and so we don't we can't choose that. So we have a bounds within which we can make decisions, and that's not an option. We're not just going to 
buy cheaper produce so that we can keep doing wholesale because that's wholesale is at the end of the day not what the business is about yeah it's about serving those members and yeah creating livelihoods and growing the local food system or yeah. strengthening it and so uh, within those bounds yeah we made this shift so yeah i think that is important that's a really important distinction that we want to exist in perpetuity not because there's some guy collecting profit in the back room but because we have this mission that we're that we formed the corporation around, that we formed the cooperative around, and and that's what we exist to serve. Yeah. So we need to find ways to do that. So the next cooperative you created after that, the Grain Shed, which is a restaurant. If people have a, a basic knowledge of the Grain Shed, they'll know that it's just like a really cool bakery and, and microbrewery in uh, in South Perry. So what's the what's the background on that? What's the yeah. what's the full story of the Grain Shed? Yeah, and uh, Link uh, led to that whole thing happening too. So we actually started at Link. We started uh, malting grain as well because we're definitely in Eastern Washington. Uh, it's a big grain um, area, and and we weren't previously serving our grain farmers through just wholesale sales. You know, there weren't school districts buying a whole lot of raw wheat or anything. Yeah, right. So we had to figure out like how do we serve them, and we had some you know smaller family grain farms that were trying to do something different. And again, their product wouldn't get a different price in the big grain market. Yeah. It's just barley or wheat or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how to do that and decided that we would start what's called malting. So you take the grain and you, you malt it, you put it through a process that then gets it into the form where brewers and distillers buy it and use yeah. it to uh, to make their grain alcohols. And so that's what we've been doing uh, as well since 2016 at Link. And I was really interested in that because I was a home brewer even before that. Yeah. And I was using malt. I didn't even know what it was or where it came from. But that's what partly what made us think about, oh, maybe we should do this malting thing. Because yeah. <laughs> it turns out malting is highly consolidated as an industry since Prohibition in the same way that beer was. Although now beer, as we know, for the last 30 years has been diversifying into craft beer and all kinds of small um, neighborhood breweries making awesome stuff. It's not just Budweiser anymore. And the, the while the supply like, chain had not diversified, right? Yet. There, there are a million different kinds of hops. There's still basically like one kind of malt. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Just a couple big companies that we and we still import a lot of it too. So yes, yeah, so we had started doing that. So that really kind of changed my whole uh, brewing life as well in this fantastic way of finding out that different varieties of barley or different varieties of wheat or uh, Don, who you know, who's one of the co-founders of the Grain Shed, grows these heritage grains. Uh, they all have very unique flavors. So it was like learning that beer could be like wine in that regard, yeah. where every single variety and where it's grown, the soil it's grown in, yeah. the way it's grown actually changes the flavor. And it Terroir. was- Terroir. Yeah, yeah, and, and no one in the beer industry was really recognizing that yet. Malt was treated like flour. It was just a commodity input. Yeah. So there were different kinds of malt and different grains, but they were all treated as the same at the end of the day. Yeah. They just had some stats on a spreadsheet, but they never were treated oh, wow. as like, oh, if it was grown here, or if it, because also they're not, single farm products. They're all blended together by these gigantic malting companies. Right. So what you get is like a perfect set of stats on a spreadsheet, but it's not <laughs> any more interesting than that. And yeah. you can't figure out where it came from. Yeah. So we wanted to do just like we do on the food side, like farm direct, individual varieties from individual farms, from individual crop years, malt that in, in single batches, and then you could make beers with that kind of stuff. And so I had us thinking about that because we were my uh, my brother-in-law, Teddy, and I were doing that as home brewers. Yeah. Like, oh, this is amazing. And then of course, selling malt with breweries and distilleries and building that up. And then I, I had met Sean through the, the wholesale food distribution part of what we do at Link. Joel's talking about the baker and restaurateur, Sean Thompson Duffy, who was one of the founding members of Grand Shed. Because he was the baker at Boozy's Bakery, which was right behind Luna, oh, it was yeah, kind of part right. of Luna. And they had a, a little stone mill there that he had um, got them to purchase. And so he was doing freshly milled flour. And so then he started looking for better grain and uh, he couldn't find anything. 
So the two of us got introduced at South Perry uh, Brewing one day. <laughs> the server was like, you two need to talk. <laughs> and then sure enough, it was, yeah, Sean said, I'm looking for grain. And I said, well, we work with farmers. So wow. um, started selling local grain direct to him that he was turning into bread. And so that part started. And then Don, after we started malting, um, Don Sherman, who is down in um, Endicott, Washington, had been growing out for the last 10 years these unique heritage grains, like unhybridized, old school grains that are super unique, totally different. So everything we use in the modern day, if you, if you get a barley or a wheat, has been bred for a particular purpose. Uh, yeah. Same with most vegetables now, too. They've been really highly bred for a purpose like shelf stability or something. Yeah, right. In that process, you end up leaving behind a lot of desirable characteristics, like maybe hardiness. His grains just don't need the kind of inputs. They have longer roots. They have more green matter, so they do more photosynthesis. They're like they're stronger plants. Yeah. They're also less efficient at producing seeds, which you know is right. what we were driving towards in, in breeding grains. But they also have more nutrition and more flavor because uh, they haven't been bred for just like the biggest endosperm or starch part of the yeah. seed possible. Because they, <laughs> they weren't bred for like to make Wonder Bread. Exactly. You know what I mean? To make white flour or yeah, malt, right. um, to make sugar, basically. And because, you know, these, these are grains that came up in pre-industrialized agriculture yeah. and where it's like a, one gra a grain that was grown in like Nebraska isn't necessarily going to be great for growing nope. on the Palouse. So the, the, it's the land race part yeah, of it where it's like natural adaptivity. This is a, what is it, Red Russian and whatever. Yeah. Uh, there are all these different purple Egyptian. So there are all these just so weird cool. little grain names that I'd never heard before <laughs> until I met Don. But they also then like these little varietals were sort of good for the specific characteristics of the Palouse in, yeah. you know, in our specific region, which means they need fewer pesticides. They are they're like they're naturally more hardy. They need they naturally need less water because they were you know, sort of adapted to a dry climate, right? So you don't have to like pump millions and millions of gallons of water out of and the nitrogen. Columbia River and nitrogen yeah. and you don't have to do all that stuff. It's, and it makes for a more flavorful grain, but the volume, because like, yeah. again, this is what we're talking about. Industrial practices only care about profit. They only care about whatever is going to get them that biggest bang for the buck. Yeah. So in that case, it was volume and not yep. flavor, tons not nutritional acre. value, yep. tons of Size grain of per seed. acre. So like yeah. as we were driving toward Wonder Bread, what we were really doing was stripping the nutrition and the flavor out of our, our wheat products or whatever, yep. you know, grain products. Yeah, because then at the end of the day, like every every acre or every ton of grain has more starch um, to yield more flour or yeah. more sugar in the brewing yeah. context. And yeah. So not to jump ahead too much, if you like, oh, yeah. if you like grain shed, and if you're like, damn, this bread tastes good or this beer tastes good. The reason is it like all the way back to the grain, the grain is better. The grain is just better. And this is not a PSA. This is me just saying like, we spend so little time thinking about our food and where it comes from. And I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. And so partially, if this is not surprising to other people, I'm just sort of owning how surprising it was to me when we started talking oh, about totally. how powerful and how every little link in the chain matters at a quality level when it comes to something like food. You yeah. think you like, you know, we, again, we are raised in a, in a society where it's like, oh, you can just like sort of fix it with some little product or some little thing. Oh, we've got bugs. Let's just, let's just spray the plant with the Take a thing. pill later. Take It'll a pill. Later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is like regenerative, restorative agriculture that he, so Don also talks a lot about how like his, his agricultural practices actually heal the land that was destroyed yeah. by industrial agricultural yeah. practices on a scale of generations, right? Yeah. So, you know, when you're buying a, a loaf of grain shed bread, you're also helping sort of fix a, yeah. a patch of land in Endicott, Washington, or, exactly. or in the greater Palouse. But in doing grain shed, you sort of got 
that final mile that that yeah. to the the fully sort of value added product you were looking for that you exactly. can sort of on that value chain you're getting the money for a full loaf of bread not just the flour to make it you're getting the money for a pint of beer not just yeah. the malt that goes into brewing it and so what did that do did that sort of like unlock a profitability and just a, and a sustainability for you that you were looking for or like what's that journey been like oh i know that's interesting um yeah, I mean, I think we we started the grain shed, and it is also a farmer and worker owned co op. Um, there's not as many farmers as with Link Foods. With Link Foods, yeah. we have you know 40 to 50 at any given time. Um, at the grain shed, we have two <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. now. We source from more than that, but um, mostly a worker owned co op. But anyway, so um, so Don, the farmer, my brother in law Teddy, and I, the brewers, and then uh, Sean, the the baker Miller chef. Actually, um, the four of us just kept getting together and talking about like, oh, we need, we need to help people understand this. But more than that, we need to like create a place where people can walk in and like taste this yeah. <laughs> so they could taste these grains. They can taste this story in the form of bread, food, or beer. And, and so the grain shed is uh, multiple meanings and that it's like, uh, it's kind of like a watershed or a food shed. Yeah. You know, it's a bioregion where it's like, you can go in and get everything that this grain shed that we live in has to offer. Um, whatever's made with grain. Um, so we hoped that would be popular. Mm, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's kind of a little obscure. I think people are really into beer, but they're they're mostly into to hoppy beer. And we're coming yeah. at it from the other angle, like the super unsexy, like, oh, we use cooler barley. You know, <laughs> no one's, and most people are like, wait, there's barley in beer? <laughs> so it was a huge risk. And, and bread, I mean, bread is great. It's fundamental. It's kind of one of those staples in our lives, but at the same time, um, it's so ubiquitous now. I mean, yeah. you can buy thousands of different kinds of loaves of bread at grocery stores, right? So yeah. is that really important? Luckily, we were right in thinking that people would care about this. Yeah. Um, and I think partly also because we located within a, a small neighborhood that, that really cares about the businesses that live within it. So the South Perry neighborhood is just fantastic for that. But yeah. Um, yeah, the reception's been fantastic. And it's it's amazing, too, with the bread piece, how wide the acceptance is. It's like new hipster 20-something moving here from Portland finds the grain shed and is like, yes, this is awesome. Spokane isn't as shitty as I thought it was. And then, uh, which is kind of insulting, but we'll take it. And then there's a 80-year-old lady comes in, buys it, comes back the next day and says, I haven't had bread like this since I was a small child, uh, you know, and my great grandma was making it and dude. doing like, you know, naturally fermented loaves uh, in the kitchen back in the day. And you're just like, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> so, so I think there's something there and it's certainly something that's survived the pandemic really well. We've been really lucky. Yeah. Um, it's uh, people have been super supportive and, and I think bread is one of those things you just, you just need every day, no matter what and beer for when you're depressed. So <laughs> it's, it's been, it's been good for us, but um, believe it or not. And I think Don talks about it in this way that's different than, than the way I've experienced the business. So he, he as the farmer is thinking about this vertical integration piece. So for him, he's growing the grain and then he's a member of link foods who malts the grain and then he's a member of the grain shed who turns the grain into the end products and sells yeah, them. So yeah. um, the bread and the, the beer and whatnot. So in, from that perspective, for him, he gets to capture more of that total value chain from from the ground yeah. to to the final product that the consumer buys. Uh, and that's the way it should be. I and mean, it makes a lot of sense. And if you're a small farmer doing the crazy stuff he's doing and with a grain that gets half to one third of the yield per acre that a modern grain will get, yeah. he needs to make up for that at a higher price. It's just yeah. the only way it's going to work. Right. But from our perspective, kind of like as a brewer or, or a worker owner there, it's actually a really tough business because we're saying, OK, we're going to be a bakery, brewery, restaurant, but we're going to buy the most expensive inputs that we can. Yeah. 
that no no one else in town is doing it that way, and we're going to pay our people more than anyone else is paying them. Yeah, how's that going to work? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so you just hope at the end of the day that you can set pricing that recognizes that value and that people will get it and pay it. Yeah, because that unfortunately there is no other way to do it. It's not magic, right? It's not like we can sell bread for the same price you can buy it at the store and yet still achieve those aims. We can't right. still use the best ingredients and pay people more and sell it for that little. Right, because you can't do it because despite all of the different business practices you guys have built into the cake, you, at the end of the day, you still have to convince people that they want to buy your bread yeah. for like three times as much as a loaf of one, like whatever Absolutely. random white bread they buy could buy off the shelf. Right. And so, yeah. and that's a marketing problem, but it's also like a, it's a, it's a storytelling problem as well. Yeah. But you guys have seemed to have told that story very, very well. Yeah. And I, I always am trying to figure out how we do it better and I don't think we do it well enough. And yet I'll see people's like, chatter or comments about us on social media or on reviews and they all seem to get it like they they yeah. talk about oh this place is awesome because they do all these cool things and i think oh i'm so glad you got that because i don't know if we've actually told the story well yeah. enough. um you know i guess it's always a challenge but um but yes at the end of the day enough people do see the value that the price isn't a problem yeah. you know they know what they're getting yeah. and they, they taste it they experience it and they love it and and i hopefully it justifies the price basically yeah. so it's awesome yeah so what's the, the vision for growing this thing in the future? Like what's your next move, you know, in this lifetime of, of creating cooperatives? What are you thinking about? Yeah. So last year I've been trying to, to answer that question and think about, uh, okay, so what's next, right? Like I'm, I'm definitely personally passionate about the things we do at Link and the things we do at the Grain Shed. But for me at the end of the day, it's like the mission. I guess if I had a personal mission, I'd have to figure out how to put that into words. Um, it'd be something about, like I said, uh, realizing coming out of our family's experience that I want to create a community that's more, more just for people and where people have more control over their livelihoods yeah. and hopefully have a, a means to achieve um, a vocation that's meaningful yeah. and that actually sustains them. And so to do that, you know, the grain shed and link are great, but it's not enough. We need yeah. more, right? Like, right. why couldn't you be a diesel mechanic in Spokane and have those same benefits and that same pride in your work and the right. same ownership in your work, right? right? So maybe we need a cooperative that does that. Um, what about other restaurants? What about retail stores? I mean, it could be anything, right? It's yeah. like I start to, my mind starts to go to like, oh, we need Mondragon in Spokane, basically. Yeah, <laughs> so right. how do we get there? And that's that's been the big question is I know from starting these two cooperatives that if I try to do it the same way going forward where I like get in there with some early founder types and figure out what the business is and actually start it and do all that work at the beginning that I'm only going to start three more before I die, <laughs> die. and not necessarily of old age, just from the stress of starting businesses. Cause that's yeah. not easy. No. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's too much. And it starts to become kind of a cumulative burden. So trying to figure out what that is, you know, do we start like a, um, I know financing's a, a huge part of the problem for all small business, yeah. but certainly for cooperative small businesses as well. Cause most, uh, well, banks, accountants, lawyers, they, they don't know what cooperatives are either. So yeah. whereas it's a legal form of business or a way to incorporate business in most States in the country, doesn't mean anyone actually knows how to help you with that. Yeah. <laughs> so and you can, you can literally, hard. cause I've done this before. Uh, you can like create an LLC in about 15 minutes so in your underwear. You can Google like operating agreement, like boilerplates that you can never look at again. You just have to file them with the secretary of state. Yep. It, it's the easiest thing in the world because that's what we as a society are most conversant in. That's yeah. what we've been pushing, you know, yeah. since the dawn of this nation is like the, and, and back to like when the idea of a corporation was like invented in Britain and the yeah. like capitalism has been pushing to make, 
you know, the entrepreneur in the sort of way we all understand that term as easy as possible for people who want to do it. Whereas a cooperative, because it's a more deliberative body, because the ownership structure is a little bit weird, it's a lot harder just even to think through how to start a thing like that. So that's why it's an added degree of difficulty to to spin up from the beginning, like the startup phase, a, a cooperative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're trying to think through that angle. Yeah. What, yeah, what can we do that would make it easier for folks to do that? Um, yeah. That to, one would make it known so that people know that I don't just have to choose an S corp or an LLC or a C corp. I could, I could start a cooperative if I so care about that. Um, once I hear about it, but also how could you access capital for that too? So trying to figure out what that would be thought about, we need like an incubator. We need a fund. We need yeah. kind of all that stuff to be a thing. And maybe that's the thing that I do next so that it's, um, Instead of starting all of the next co-ops, be the start the catalyst organization that will start the next Other co-ops. co-ops. Yeah. Yeah. And then, <laughs> as you may know, Luke, beyond that, an option that is really interesting that kind of goes, yeah, a step further than maybe uh, an incubator would. Uh, a new model that's kind of starting around the country that's really intriguing to me is taking the model of a holding company which is very okay. common in our society, you know, like uh, Procter and Gamble, I think is, is yeah. one example. Uh, Warren Buffett's organization, which I can't remember what it's called. The same thing. It's a holding company. It's so a it's, very common structure yeah. in capitalism for people who want to invest in individual, co- like they spread their money around, not in the stock market, but by buying chunks or entire yeah. companies. Yeah. 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 So it's like one umbrella company that owns all these other companies underneath it. And yeah. then sometimes it'll end up supporting them with services as well, like back end services. But it's, yeah, it ends up being a portfolio of companies owned by one bigger company. And so uh, you create a lot more stability that yeah. way. It diversifies risk for the investors and the owners and whatnot. So there are folks that are doing that using the cooperative lens. And so the umbrella company, the holding company actually ends up being a worker owned cooperative and then it buys and or creates other companies um, to, to operate within its portfolio. But all the people that work at those underlying companies actually are employed by and own the, the umbrella company. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's kind of uh-huh. like a mini Mondragon. Mondragon's different in that it's all autonomous cooperatives that then kind of belong to this greater yeah. thing. And they have those second level co-ops that they belong to as well and right. own like, you know, their social services and the bank and all that kind of stuff. Right. So this is a little different in that it's contained within one corporate structure. But yeah, that's really intriguing to me. I feel like that could be the next move in Spokane that would be really powerful and yeah. a way to um, to start building this kind of ecosystem of cooperatives here. That, that's really cool. That's spread across multiple industries and And then over time, as you know, because what you're trying to do, the ultimate thing is getting as much sort of worker power built as possible, getting as many people sustainable livelihoods as possible, but also sort of belonging to a group of people who believe a certain way and also, you know, have a passion for and speak collectively to say like, hey, you know, in the in the exact same way that like the healthcare industry around here speaks collectively via Providence or something like that, like. Yep. And the the uh, the military industrial complex speaks through the desires of Fairchild Air Force Base. You could have a group of workers that's yeah. like, hey, the cooperative thinks that we need to do this with our public policy to make life more livable for Spokane families. Absolutely. Like so this is a question I ask everybody, despite it all, despite this incredibly difficult year. Like, what what gives you hope? Thinking about that vision you're you're trying to catalyze here. Mm. Like, what what gives you hope for the next 10, 20, 30 years? The, basically, the rest of your life in Spokane. Yeah. Oh, probably I'll say two different things um, this year. So one. 
in the in the disruption caused by the pandemic, what we saw was really interesting. We saw all these global kind of systems, um, namely the food system, break down in these wow. interesting ways. You know, like I, th- I feel like the message brought to us is that this system's so much better and more efficient and cheaper and more powerful, and so obviously that's the one that we should be choosing. Yeah. But then we saw where there's actually a, a lot of weaknesses in that system when something like this happens, where you don't have any local resiliency anymore, and so. Yeah all the big meat packing plants shut down and then all of a sudden people are panicking at the grocery store they're because they don't meat have, there's no meat. Yeah. yeah, they don't have what they need. And yet we have all these local growers that are like, oh, well, I've, I've got plenty. <laughs> what do you yeah. need? You know, but they don't have the market or the channel or, you know, right. whatever it is to, to get what they do out to people. And yeah. so there was this big turn towards local food. There's a lot of interest that grew out yeah. of out of that, I think, grocery store fear, like CSAs or things like we do called Linkbox, like, those grew dramatically this year as people saw that reality of the grocery store and said, how else can I make sure that I have food every week? And yeah. the best way to do that is to connect with some local source of that where yeah. it's like, again, you can interact with the people doing that work. You can learn from them, but you also, it's tangible. It's yeah. in your community. It doesn't matter if we have all of these big global breakdowns, you can still get the food you need awesome. every week. That gives me a lot of hope that there was so much recognition of that. I hope that lasts yeah, once yeah. things return to normal. Quote unquote. But it was a big boost for local food for sure. So yeah, let's hope that continues and that's hopeful. Um, the other one is that cooperatives, as esoteric as they seem in our society, have been rapidly growing in the last five years. I mean, it's amazing. Wow. From the time that we started Link six years ago to today, it's just there's like three times as many worker co-ops in the country and it just keeps growing. I just wow. keep hearing more and more and more conversation about employee ownership. A lot of people, even from the private capital lens, recognizing the benefits of employee ownership of different kinds, including wow. cooperatives, yeah. just that they create more stable, more agile, actually, and longer lasting small businesses than other forms of ownership. Uh-huh. And so even from a capital perspective, people are recognizing like, wow, this is really important. This model has something to it. Like there's some magic there. It's not just not just a different way to do it. That's uh, yeah, that's some radical socialist thing. So yeah, yeah. Um, it gives me a lot of hope that that's being recognized all over the country and that it's growing and that the movement is evolving. So seeing people come up with this next version of how we spread co-ops, this holding cooperative kind of idea, like yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. So we are pushing it forward. I mean, as a country in the world, we're way behind on the cooperative front yeah. as far as density, but uh, we're getting there. Yeah. I think it's rapidly moving forward. Joel, man, it was really, really awesome talking to you. I'm sure this won't be the last time I have you on. There's just too much to talk about. There's all, all of the democratic structure stuff. I wanted. To, we didn't get to any of that yeah. stuff. But I think this is a good table setter for thinking about an alternative way to do business, an alternative way to give people livelihoods, a way that, in my opinion, is a lot more humane yeah. and a lot more empowering for individual yeah. workers. And that also, you know, by its very nature, wants to keep the revenue that it makes as close to home as possible, which I think I, I, I don't even think sense. the most like red blooded, you know, bloodthirsty capitalist in the world could disagree that this this model makes for a much more resilient community. The more of them you have in any given community. Yeah. You know, I was just listening to the Revolutions podcast last night that Ooh. you recommended. And, Personal uh, faith. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> yeah. If I think about it, I'll put a link to the Rev- Revolutions podcast. So is good. one of the coolest podcasts ever made. Yeah. But it, the interesting thing, and I'd never heard this before, he I just, he just started talking about Marx and some of the early like International Working Men's Association yeah. um, that became like the international as we know it. But um, in the early debates, Marx was actually denigrating some of the movements for worker cooperatives <laughs> because he thought that was too anarchist. Right. It was like as a strategy, it was like, 
these people like me basically saying like, oh, let's just build our communities. Let's do co-ops. Let's yeah. do all this stuff. Let's make this. And he's like, no, that's that's too, that's nothing. You know, we, we got to do this big <laughs> the system whole stuff over here. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I had never heard it that way before. That yeah. The cooperativism in that way was anarchism. Yeah, right. So weird. <laughs> So Which there you go. There's yeah. something for everyone in co-ops. Yeah. So whether you're a communist or an anarchist, you like you can like co-ops. It's libertarian yeah. too. It's everything. It is liberty. That's actually it is very libertarian, and it's been fascinating to see how more right-wing and also like incredibly you know psychotic right-wing people are really thinking about local ownership yeah. of grain and food supplies because yeah. they're preparing for a, a maybe a holocaust, <laughs> uh, or or just like the end of the world. Uh, they're thinking about this stuff too. So yeah. um, it's. One, there's a there's a market for you. But people are thinking about local resiliency yeah. because they're seeing so much at that sort of centralized national level collapse and yeah. global level. It's like it's a lot more brittle than any of us yeah. thought it was. Yeah, well, and you we just feel powerless right. to do anything about it. And it's not as resilient as, as, as we were promised, right? The promise of this sort of globalized capitalist order was that it was going to like provide for all of our needs. And that's clearly not true. Nope. <laughs> objectively not true. You don't have to have an ideological bent to see how the system has struggled under the weight of what used to be a pretty common occurrence, a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, there's no fix in that yeah. with, within the system. So we got to think about other ways to do it locally. That's right. Uh, but Joel, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. It's great. So as you can tell, that conversation could have gone on for like another hour or another couple hours because you're just getting into a lot of the depth and all the little tendrils of possibility that come out of a model like this. But then another service that Speak Studios, uh, how's this for a transition, offers is when Riley, the guy who records the show for us, flashes a little thing that says, five minutes to go, guys. You told me you wanted to keep this to an hour. You get a little note. So as an interviewer, if you're getting totally engrossed in a conversation, you got somebody there to be like, hey, man, you said you wanted to keep this to an hour, so let's uh, let's call it good. So yeah, come for the safe, socially distanced, beautiful recording environment. Stay for the guy who helpfully reminds you to wrap it up. With the wrap it up box, you've got that same power right in your pocket. So then I just went to Howard where I majored in sociology. I made a lot of friends and had a really good time. So that was college. How about you? So yes, this is not the last conversation we're going to have with Joel because there's a lot more to talk about around this this structure of operations that is more emancipatory, it's more democratic, it shares its wealth with the people that actually create the wealth, unlike most forms of capitalism. So remember that next time you bite into one of those delicious grain shed falafels or the pizza night they do on Mondays or when you decide to get a link box. You're buying some of the most delicious food in Spokane. You're also helping provide a good, sustainable living wage job in a sector that doesn't have a lot of that. So yeah, man, co-ops are the shit. Sorry, mom. All right, that's going to do it for me today, guys. Thank you so much. Back next week. Bye. That's a wrap!